a violin soloist. They could play at Carnegie Hall one day and then play an outdoor show in Central Park the next day. And then they could be um, at a at a small 200-seat venue uh, somewhere else the day after that. And the way... The way it'll sound to an audience member who's the exact same number of feet away from them at all three of those performances will be so radically different. Hi, and welcome to And If Love Remains. I am your host, Mike Lovett, and I am excited to have on board today... Again, our maestro of music, Elias Axel Pedersen. Um, we have done some amazing uh, uh, episodes, especially lately. I'm, I'm excited about where things are, are headed, Elias. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so thanks again for being on the show. Oh, awesome. Sure. Yeah. And then, and then you have brought to us a wonderful uh, guest, uh, Dr. Brett Leonard. Um, Dr. Leonard is an audio educator, researcher, and freelance engineer, and currently serves as the Director of Music Technology Program um, at the University of Indianapolis. He works on recording projects ranging from classical and jazz to pop rock, including projects with artists such as Matt Heimovitz, the Brass Band of Battle Creek, Lucille uh, McLaurin-Salvant, and Bob Meldon under the auspices of his company, BL uh, BLP Audio, and also serves as the chief audio engineer for the Chelsea Music Festival in New York. Dr. Leonard's research focuses on spatial audio and acoustics, including collaborations with Sennheiser, NHK, and Skywalker Sound. He is active in the Audio Engineering Society, both as an author and as a committee member in the Central Indiana section. Dr. Leonard is an alumnus of California Lutheran University and New York University and holds a PhD in sound recording from McGill University. And most importantly to us, because this is how we know him, is he recorded Elias's amazing solo piano and duet piano, uh, piano violin albums. And grateful to have you. Thank you so much, Dr. Leonard, for being on the show. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. I'm so glad that you got to come and, and talk to us. Of course, I've known Brett for a long time, so now we get to delve in and hear a little bit about his his past and how he came into his uh, into his field. So, Mike, maybe you you you're a much better person to ask those sorts of questions. <laughs> well, I I I love you know I do love origin stories as people know by now, and 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 I am interested. Um, uh, Brett, how how did you get? I mean, let's talk about like where did, where did you grow up, and and how did you fall in love with audio? Yeah, I I um I it's sort of a cliche story almost at this point. I started as a musician. Like so many, so many people sort of in the behind the scenes of the music business. Um, I grew up in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and I was really active as a percussionist um, through high school. I was playing with the the youth symphony and playing in, you know, the school's concert band and marching band and all that stuff. And had a couple of my own sort of side projects. Um, and I think it was my junior year of high school, uh, we decided with one of the bands I was in, we decided we would make an EP. So, you know, as we did, we looked up all the local studios and there was one super nice studio that no one could afford. And we're like, okay, (laughs) let's see what else there is. And so we found this great little, this great little studio. They had done some really cool stuff and they were kind of one of the go-tos for local bands. And, um, dove in as a player. And as soon as I set foot in that place, like I walked in and set down my drums and I was like, this is cool. I love everything. <laughs> right. <laughs> so yeah, I That's sort of great. just, by the way, I have to, I have to ask, cause we are here in, in Phoenix. So I am curious, like what, what high school did you go to? Where was this? Oh at? yeah. That's right. I, I keep forgetting. Everyone's all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> so I went to Paradise Valley high school. Okay. Um, right on. And it was a great, I was there at such an amazing time. Um, there had been kind of shakeups and, and they had opened new schools and things had shifted around. And when I was there, we just had this incredible instrumental music program. We had uh, uh. two incredible directors. And at that time, 
about one out of every eight students at the school was involved in the instrumental music program. So My it was way. like massive. Great. Yeah, it was it was crazy. And, you know, and thinking thinking about that now, it's so uncommon to see that much participation, right. I think. Um, so it was just it was kind of a perfect, perfect timing, perfect place, perfect oh. time. Yeah, absolutely. OK, so you so you walk into the studio and you're like, like gear heaven, being in the studio, like the whole everything about it just like spoke to you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was nothing like I'd ever seen before. And, you know, thinking about it now, having, you know, sort of spent about 20 years now, sort of on the other side of things, it wasn't a super fancy place. It was people who were really passionate about what they were doing. You know, they were, they were there to, to help people sound good and to sort of help that music get out to the world and uh, yeah, I didn't appreciate that until much, much later. Um, but yeah, it would just, it kind of clicked with me. And, you know, we did it in kind of a normal rock session style. So we recorded everybody together and the drums were the focus. We kept <laughs> Which the Which nobody does anymore. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and well, and then it was overdub this and I think we'll add some guitars and whatever. Right. And they were like, you can, you can go, you're done. I'm like, no, I'm cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so awesome. I mean, I think I was done in two days and we did it over like a spring break. So we were there for five days and I think I was done by the end of the second day. And okay. I was there every day for the rest of that week, just hanging out in the control room, you know, kind of peering over shoulders, trying to see what was going on. It's <laughs> awesome. That is great. That's fantastic. That's the best way to learn something, though. It's it's almost like an apprenticeship. You're really getting the, getting the hands-on approach, and you were still young, fairly impressionable, and yeah. uh, you know could absorb so much of that info that probably most high schoolers don't get. Well, and you know, I I think about it. It's sort of interesting because it it wasn't. It didn't feel formative at the time. Like it wasn't this, you know, earth-shattering thing that happened, but. Um, fast forward a few years, I get through school, I'm, or get through high school. I playing a ton. Um, I ended up going to a, a smaller college in Southern California, uh, and had really no intention of doing music as anything, but sort of a fun activity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was playing a lot cause I showed up and they just had a couple of percussionists graduate. And so they're like, Oh, wait, you're percussion's your first instrument what are you doing monday night uh, i don't yeah. know okay you're in the orchestra what are you doing right tuesday on. night uh i don't know you're in the wind on so it was like you know it just kind of kind of grew into, into uh, everything yeah and and it was super cool but i was a business major and one okay. 8 a.m accounting class took care of that for me yeah um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah when i kind of had this this moment of like well what am i really gonna do you know i know why i showed up here but is that really where where i want to head um i happened to see on the list of electives there was a digital music class and all of a sudden Mm. i was back in kind of a small you know do-it-yourself recording studio for this class and that's when it kind of clicked man i really loved doing that stuff a couple of years ago you know and maybe maybe this is something that i could actually do beyond just you know, once every five years making a record or something. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Some of the best formative experiences though. And and you don't even realize you're learning so much because you're enjoying it yeah. and, and just absorbing it all. And, and that's awesome. So you yeah. kind of made music a career in, in another way you never would have expected. Yeah. And, and I have to say, I, it was, it was really funny because even after I sort of realized, okay, my heart is in music. Like music is really my passion. So I think it's going to be something with music. I, I called um, one of my high school percussion instructors, just amazing, um, amazing teacher, amazing player. Uh, and I said, you know, hey, Emma, I think I'm I'm interested in doing music. And she said, you know, I'm so happy for you. We all kind of, you know, talked about it when you graduated and you said you weren't going to do music. We kind of all figured that wasn't right. (laughs) So they sort of knew, but but she said, you know, keep in mind, I went to IU Bloomington and did an undergrad. And then I went to Juilliard and did a master's and I like sub with the local symphony, Uh but like, I still take other gigs, you know, like I have like a day job. (laughs) 
Yeah. Right. And that was a really another pivotal moment where it sort of made me examine um, the music industry in a way that was a little more honest, I think, than some people who are, you know, 19, 20 years old. They're super excited. Yeah, I'm going to be a musician. And right. Idealistic people at a school. And- yeah. Yeah. It's such a, a starry eyed kind of yes. exciting thing. And now being on the faculty side of things, it's really fascinating because I've had those same conversations and I try to always remember the like real honest truth that was told to me in that moment. Um, yeah. And, 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 you know, try to be that honest with my students or, or somebody who comes to me for advice, because that made a difference too. You know, it made me look outside of people think the only thing you can do in music is play an instrument or sing. Right. And there's so much more. There so. is. And, and that's it, you know, the, and I want to get back to your biography because this is, I'm digging this, but I'm, I'm curious, like jumps, jump to today. You know, where I have a kind of a theory that, that I don't know if it's a theory, but I, it's, it's an idea that um, because, um, because of technology, um, engineering, recording, um, you know, everybody has a project studio. Everybody has, yeah. you know, it, I mean, everybody has it. So, so it's almost as if, um, you know, the musicians of yesterday are, 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 are in the, or, or I guess you should say that the, the engineers of today are in the same predicament that maybe you found yourself, you know, a few years back of, of, well, maybe, <laughs> uh, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe I shouldn't be doing, you know, recording, you know, my, my buddy's band for free all the time. You know what I mean? In yeah, other words, it, yeah. it, it becomes this, this, this problem of it's great when you're, when you're very good at something, but it is a difficult industry to get into even on the, the technical end, I think. Yeah. And, and it's, it's interesting, you know, I don't, I don't, I still feel like I'm a reasonably young person, but yeah. I, I, I talk with my students and I sort of, you know, okay, well, when I started out this, this, or this, and I see the looks on their faces and I'm like, wow, yeah, things have really, really changed even in, you know, 20 years. It's, yeah. it's just really evolved. And now, um, I, I have a friend who's up at Sweetwater and talking to him, I don't know, about six months after the pandemic really kind of settled in. So it must have been midsummer last year. Um, and I said, you know, how, how have things been from you? Like, have things been okay? Is everyone sort of doing all right? And he said, <laughs> he said, it's been like Black Friday every, every single day. day. Yeah, right. Said, everyone, everyone wants a new microphone, a new <laughs> interface. And like, I think, you know, come 2022, let's, let's, keep our fingers crossed and we're back to normal. I think there will be like a one to one home studio to person ratio in this country. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. It is crazy. But but the good part about it is is you do find, you know, interest you know, people learn in, in all kinds of great ways and um it does come down to how what is your technique? How good are you? And right. and, and let's get into that a little bit as far as like where did you learn that and and, and when you made the decision, I want to get in on the engineering side, I want to get in on the recording side, um, you know, what, uh, um, you know, what were some of your, 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 I guess, mentors or, or how did you learn how to, how to work in those environments? Yeah, I, I, um, you know, first, first and foremost was my advisor, um, at Cal Lutheran. He was super cool guy named Mark Spragans. He's a composer, but he was very into, um, being able to kind of mock up his own music in a very convincing way. So he was super deep into, um, sampling and synthesizers and sequencing. So he could kind of do the film score thing where he could write something out and then present somebody with something that sounded pretty Pretty. close to what it would sound like with real musicians. Right. And he, uh, when I got there, I didn't really even realize that I was in the only studio at the school. But by the time I finished my first year, they were putting a new studio together. And so a lot of my, my sort of first few years of learning, it was really cool because it was like, okay, there's a box of stuff. There's a box of gear and some cable. <laughs> How does oh, this all cool. go together? You know, and, right. <laughs> and, you know, I didn't, I took for granted that I like learned how to solder 
Why? Because oh. if we didn't solder stuff, nothing was going to work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, really that's... the DIY, you know, do it yourself. And, and actually, since I've known you, um, even, even working with you in the studio, you always seemed like a very handyman type. I yeah. mean, always coming up just with, well, let's try this, you know, and maybe it was as simple as let's duct tape this together. Or maybe it was, <laughs> or something more complex, you know, we've got to put these in combination here. You know what? You, you deal with it. You figure it out. I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's above my pay grade. But well, yeah. And, right? and it's, that's some of the most fun stuff to me because like I'm still, I was a science nerd, you know, as a kid. And so that's still some of the most fun stuff to me is like, okay, let's try this, you know, let's uh-huh. crack open this piece of gear and change the value of some resistor or capacitor, you know, like you can just sort of dive into that end. Um, and I'm sure that being thrown into that side of it, that, I mean, yeah, I was 19 years old and all of a sudden I'm, I'm putting together a studio with a faculty member, you know, I'm sure that sort of informed my whole outlook on like, man, I need some more tools and I need some, you know, I need a new pair of wire strippers. Like what kid asks for that? You know, but I was <laughs> yeah. like, Christmas. All right. Here's an idea. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, I, I, go, I'm go a little curious too. Like for a musician in the music world, let's say performance world or uh, on an instrument or voice, we kind of hone our skills and you go to college, you study with somebody that really teaches you how to play your instrument. And by the way, you brought up some other great points and I think this is your business acumen as well that we don't we don't teach a lot of other necessary skills at school you know okay what do you do with this playing ability but um maybe for for people that don't understand in the general public uh it's already hard enough to explain well you can really get better at an instrument or singing with a with a good teacher (laughs) and and hone your skills but then everybody just assumes oh a recording engineer well what kind of skills have you developed don't you just press play you know, and I know that's very simplistic, but what are some of the things that you had to hone uh, to acquire such a large skill set and toolbox? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, it's it's an interesting skill set. It's a very um, very broad skill set, and there I don't think there's anything that I know that there isn't you know, a field that has a much greater depth of knowledge, but it's sort of these, these bits put together. And so for me, a lot of it was learning about acoustics and learning how instruments work. Um, Cause it, it's sort of incredible to me that you see people who don't understand how a cello makes sound or how a flute works or what the soundboard of a piano does but they're trying to put microphones on it and and right. it's such a disconnected thing you know you if you don't understand where the sounds coming from and where what sound is coming from mm-hmm. you're you're kind of guessing or you're imitating something you've seen somebody else do so to me that was one of the big like not only reading about it in a book or seeing you know crazy animations of it but then being able to immediately apply that and and have a cello player that I could be like, hey, man, what are you doing this weekend? You want to come into the studio? I'm going to put a bunch of mics on you and sort of figure this out or associate what I'm hearing with what I read. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, that's incredible. That's awesome. Yeah. It is. It is. That's really interesting because, you know, you'll see this a lot. And, and you know, I don't want to you know, disparage anybody here, but, but for example, you'll see somebody, uh, you know, uh, miking up an acoustic guitar. And the first thing they do is stick a microphone right in the hole, yep. you know, and it's like, <laughs> that's not, you know, I mean, if you really want a boomy sound, <laughs> yes, but no, uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like, that's not how it works, but yeah, uh, yeah it, it is that, that kind of being, being, being that intimate with how sound works. I can see just being so huge in, in what you do. Well, and, and it's funny because, you know, that's a great example, the acoustic guitar. There are so many instruments that kind of have a, a proverbial target drawn on them, and it's very misleading. Right. Uh, you know, yeah. same thing Same thing with, you know, you see people put a mic on the F-hole of a violin or something, and you're like, well, that's probably not what you want to hear, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, you know, all of these things where it's like, 
or, or people who that's might... not the speaker yeah <laughs> right. like the bell of a saxophone you know people are like oh mm-hmm. well that's where the sound comes out well you actually the sound comes out everywhere you know so you're sort of zooming in on you know one tenth or whatever and well, yeah and one it's, part of the sound yeah it's really it's fascinating you know and and there again there's you know a whole field of study that that's all they do is study instrument acoustics and those people obviously could run laps around me faster than I can blink but I have enough of that knowledge and kind of try to stay abreast as people sort of learn more and more about decoding these instruments that were designed before anyone cared about acoustics you know people just wanted it to sound good they didn't care which direction it shot and and now we're really reverse engineering a lot of things that were developed before that science existed. And I'm just trying to make sure I'm on top of things. So, you know, if somebody says, you know, Ophelia says, ah, man, the the sound's too bright. Okay. So where's the highest high frequency sound coming out of the piano? I need to move away from that. Yeah. You know, and I sort of translate that into hopefully the sound that the player wants. Yeah, you think maybe 200 years ago and some or 300 or more when some of these instruments were developed, the um, the social norms and what people were expecting, they didn't have electronic means of verifying or measuring and uh, and the concert spaces and all those things just would have been much different, much smaller usually. Yes. So just just developing a piano, it was enough to make it out of wood and steel, you know, just to get more sound and okay, turn the lid so it goes out. That was a huge improvement, you know. And now we can we can get into so much finer detail. Well, and I even think about think um, think about things like the orchestra, like how how an orchestra is situated on yep. stage, and you know how we and versus how we listen to you know if you listen to any kind of modern, I mean even even orchestral piece in a lot of cases, but if if it's if it's a, a like a movie score or something, but. Um, but if you listen to any kind of modern music, you're going to hear the bass smack in the middle. You're going to hear, you know, the 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 vocals smack in the middle. And then you're going to hear kind of everything else on the outside to kind of, you know, pitter in wherever they might fit. Where on a, on a stage, you know, you've got, you've got the basses and the cellos clear off to the right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it is, it is, it is a completely different um, acoustical experience that people have. Yeah. And I think, I think so much has evolved too for all of us. I mean, I'm trying to think the iPod, the first iPod came out maybe when I was in college or very late high school. And then the iPhone came out when I was in grad school and the, the transition from people listening in their cars or, you know, in their mm-hmm. living room or something to just everybody sticking speakers in their ears. And that's the only right. thing that matters. Yeah. You know, that's <laughs> been huge too. And, and yeah. the way that people listen and interpret sound, um, there's some things that are much less forgiving in, in the world today of headphone listening that, than what was available yeah. on speakers 15 years ago as the normal. And I think it affects, at least in in the classical world, more. And we we talked to um, Mike Ain, uh, Mark Ainley. I don't know if you know, yeah, uh, but, yeah. yeah uh, about sort of recordings in the classical world and how it affects things. I assume, and I, I could be a little bit ignorant here, that in the let's just go up with pop world, um, the recording what you hear on a on an album, let's say, is going to be fairly close to what you hear in a live concert. Obviously, there are differences, and you know, un- un- unfortunately or fortunately. Um, the the CD might be auto-tuned, so you know the singing yeah. in concert might not be at that same level. Uh, but the balance and all that, you're you're it's all produced sort of. Whereas, you know, if I, I listen to a piano concerto on uh, on a recording, the pianist is mic'd a lot more. It's a lot more present, and yeah. and the balance is way off. When you go hear that in in concert, um, so often you can barely hear the soloist. Now that's partly a problem of the maybe the soloist, but usually just. You have a huge hall, much bigger than when the piece was piece was yeah. written for a much smaller hall, and and um, you know you, just the acoustics there. You can't really hear the soloist. So how much does uh, does the recording industry kind of affect our expectations in in live recording or in in a live setting rather? That's oh wow, that's it's a, a lot. That's there. A we, we'll get into question. some of it at some point. But yeah. I mean, well, you know, it, it's interesting because you. When you when you sort of started down that path, I thought to myself, "That's interesting." 
a lot of people say they hear a CD of a, a pop act and then they're disappointed in the live performance because it wasn't right. as jazzy or, you know, full or whatever. But I started to think about it more. If you look at the credits for most major pop tours now, and I'm talking about like real sort of radio pop, um, you will see on the crew listed a Pro Tools engineer. Wow. And okay. there's that much um, playback, pre-record stuff and sequencing and whatever. So it's it's interesting as you sort of were talking through that, I was thinking, well, really the magic, quote unquote, magic of the studio, you know, the, the ability to auto-tune, the ability <laughs> to add a 16th guitar track because we're bored, you know, all of these crazy <laughs> things, they really have changed the live world to the point that people expect it to sound the same. And if it doesn't, you know, okay, maybe there'll be a dance break, you know, between the the third chorus and the bridge, but why, you know, right. what, where's my favorite shaker loop? Where's my favorite 63rd <laughs> right. background vocal, you know, wow. and now that's expected. Whereas classical, yeah, it's, there's a lot more sort of well, holistic vibe to things, I think. And and I want to I want to ask you this because I because I know you did study in 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 room spatial audio yeah. stuff right and I think that's the other aspect of it that it's not just the instrument that we hear but it's actually the room that we hear and yeah. um I, I'm curious like like um how does that um um like maybe maybe you can give an example or or, or why. Why is why are rooms you know so important to both the recording and how we listen um both both in a live setting and in a in a you know if I, if I'm setting up a yeah. home theater like a lot of people I don't think think about like the they'll they'll put up big old speakers but they're not thinking yes. about like what's the acoustics <laughs> of that's going on that's yeah, that's my favorite five thousand dollar speakers in a five hundred dollar car <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly yeah. that is that is the quintessential you know home theater problem you spend all the money on the fun exciting stuff you know at the store and you bring it home and you put it in a whatever in square four, bedroom and, 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 right yeah. Yeah. Cool man. room yeah i i mean i think that's something and i think unfortunately um well i don't want to say unfortunately because everything's a creative tool um but as we moved into the electronic era people began to sort of dissociate the acoustic environment from the final product because yeah. it was just a synth. It was just a drum machine. And it didn't matter if I was doing that at home or if I was doing that in some glorious studio or some famous, you know, rock club. And I, it's, man, it's just, it's kind of a tragedy that, that, that has, that has sort of broken apart. Um, because yeah, you, you could hear the same orchestra, or let's let's even go smaller. Let's say the exact same soloist, uh, violin soloist. They could play at Carnegie Hall one day, and then play an outdoor show in Central Park the next day, and then they could be um, at a at a small two hundred seat venue uh, somewhere else the day after that. And the way the way it'll sound to an audience member who's the exact same number of feet away from them at all three of those performances will be so radically different. And right. um, yeah, I just, I, I think about, I sort of missed the real, like the golden years of classical recording. I, I was a little late to that party, but I, I have heard stories from mentors and teachers about, well, we're planning this album. I guess we should go look at a couple of different concert halls to record in and find the yeah. right one. And, yeah. you know, they really knew, they really understood how big a difference that could make. And these days, smaller budgets, uh, tighter timetables, or just, you know, the inability. I think about what we're doing right now during the pandemic. It's, okay, what do we have? What can we use? You know, there's yeah. no choice whatsoever. It's really just trying to make it work. And so we end up with these really weird experiences uh, I did a, a piano trio thing that was recorded in somebody's living room. And by living room standards, it was nice and big. I mean, they had a nice Steinway piano in there. It was great, but so radically different than what you expect to hear. 
You know, it was, it was right. just, you couldn't quite figure out. You're like, well, I hear all the notes and they're playing beautifully, but just something's not right. And yeah. that's the, the acoustic environment. It either glues it together or kind of breaks it apart. I feel that the recording engineer almost becomes one of the artists that's uh, collaborating. And I know when, when we worked, uh, you know, on a solo album and a duo album that we spent, of course, we spent many hours over the course of a couple weekends, you know, based on McGill's schedule, um, <laughs> figuring out when we can get some tracks. But then there was just tons of hours to listen to things and choose them. And um, I remember just finding the right way to edit something. I, I always remember one yeah. particular piece. Um, I think it was on the solo album. Yes. And and just finding that right uh, place to kind of clip because I, you know, I had a one note wrong in a section and we brought it in from another like a large section, but I didn't want to just piecemeal. And, you know, you're talking about bringing in different acoustics because some pedal was held. I mean, I think it took us mostly you and me kind of trying to listen and, and give some advice about an hour for that single edit. And I'm sure we were both getting frustrated, but really the, the editor, the, of that album, the recording engineer, becomes part of the artistic final product, the vision in a way. Um, and when you mentioned, I didn't even think of this, but when you're saying on a, on a live tour, you'll have, uh, you know, the Pro Tools mixer listed yeah. uh, to bring all that. That just blows my mind how over almost overproduced things are uh, and how much control that person is. And it's like we, we look to the band member, the lead singer, like, oh, he's awesome. And, you know, it, it's not him always or her always. It's, it's guy behind the scenes it reminds me of that little uh video that that made its rounds a couple years ago i think we both posted it on facebook of uh you, you see the panning of the uh, amazing sound amazing voice oh, and, yeah right and you see this audio engineer like yeah. sweating and moving all the dials <laughs> and it's like and the husbands they're like oh honey that sounds gorgeous and it hands <laughs> over to the room and she's just screeching oh <laughs> yeah well there's the, I have a I have a buddy who did it who used to work a lot of festivals and things and and he tells a story of and I can't remember which act it is so I can't you know say who it was but it was pretty funny where where um somebody uh, uh, some computer module broke down and they're they're carrying it back to get a fix and somebody yells out right in front of the artist don't drop the band you know? <laughs> <laughs> well wow. I, i've never been involved in that side like i i've done live sound mostly for jazz and classical i've never done like you know big arena shows or anything but i've i've heard from some friends who are more in, involved in that world that one of the toughest jobs with some of these tours is that they have a bunch of backing tracks playing, but if the artist, you know, stops singing to dance or something, right. you've got to have your hand on the fader so you can pull it down <laughs> so you can keep that illusion that, you know, it really was them the whole time. Yeah. It's just kind of crazy. Play uh, to the click. Play to the click. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Stop lip, lip syncing. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, get busted like Millie Vanilli or somebody. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. So um, how? So uh, what What drove you more into, like, was it because of your love of classical music, jazz music? Like, what, what drove you kind of to specialize in in those genres yeah i i had um i had the opportunity to go up to the aspen music festival the summer between my junior and senior year of undergrad and up until that point i'd really thought of classical recording as like you bring a couple of microphones you set up in the back of the room you kind of hit go and you know that's all there is to it um and going there and watching it was an incredible group of of faculty on the audio side and and senior engineers and people who were just phenomenal and watching them you know spend 3 or 4 hours hanging microphones before a rehearsal to really dial in the sound and then they'd go up after rehearsal and tweak some things also the concert was just beautiful and huge and lush and it really yeah. kind of changed my mind and i thought the recording studio is cool, but this is, I mean, you think, you think a, a rock band playing through a bunch of Marshall half stacks is loud, but man, when you hear a romantic orchestra playing yeah. Strauss or Wagner, or it's incredible. Like it's powerful. Yeah. And I think that just really impacted me. They did. Ein Heldenleben was one of the first things they did when I got there. And I was just, 
so blown away by like just the raw power of this incredible hundred plus person orchestra and antiphonal trumpets and all the stuff going on. I thought, man, this is just as kind of crazy as any studio production. It's just, it wears a bow tie, you know, it, it just yeah. appears different, but it's really no different under the surface. So, and, and it's, and it's very live and the, the amount of detail that I, you know, I think about the amount of detail that, that when, um, you know, Elias and I talk about piano, that we talk about and, and that we get into um, the amount of detail that must go on to the, the uh, either the recording or on the um, uh, you know, the sound side of things has got to be just immense and just an, a, an intense experience to, to get everything just, just right. Um, yeah. For that and, experience. And it feels more like doing a lot of, especially live classical, you know, when you're, when you're sort of, you're doing a dress rehearsal and a concert, and that's what you have to work with. You know, you're not you're not coming back the next day to fix something. It feels kind of like playing. It feels kind of like performing, because mm -hmm. just like when you sit down to play a concert, in in 40 minutes it's over whether whether everything went perfectly or not. So you're sort right. of hyper focused. <laughs> that's that's my favorite part about doing live classical stuff is. You're in the zone, you know, you're really, you're on top of it. You've got the score open, you know exactly what's happening and you're sort of focused just the same as the people on stage because you're performing along with them. Um, and that's a lot of fun. That's, that's been that's, that's awesome. cool to hear. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. Mike and I do talk about some of these different issues and I don't know if before we started, even if you talked to him, him a bit, because uh, not only is he a musician, but he's also a bit of a recording engineer yeah. himself as a lot of this stuff. So, you know, just some of the lingo, I've only picked it up just through osmosis, I feel, <laughs> but uh, a little out of my element there, but I love being part of it. And I've always liked learning more about my instrument, um, uh, more, mostly piano and you're talking to piano technicians. What are these things and talking to uh, audio engineers and trying to learn their language too, because that will make my playing better and hopefully the recording experience uh, better and, and we can get to a final result. So, I actually have a couple questions that um, are, might be tough to answer, and they might seem like uh, slightly naive questions, but they're things I, I get asked as a, as a pianist. So one yeah. of them is always, what's the hardest piece, or what's your favorite piece? And so I want to ask you as a recording engineer, and if this is too silly, whatever, that's fine, but <laughs> is there an instrument or instruments that is the hardest in a way to, to record and you know, there could be different parameters for that. And is there an instrument or instruments or voice or whatever that you're most comfortable or you're just like, ah, oh, I love doing this. Um, yeah, no, that's a totally fair question. And, and it's, uh, I think it's surprising to some people and even, even young recording engineers as they're sort of honing their ears, sometimes they, uh, they don't think about the difficulty of the nuance, but actually solo piano and voice and piano are, I think, two of the hardest things to really get right. Mm -hmm. um, and because, why? And, I, and there's no pressure to say that. Yeah. I, I kind of thought you might go that direction, but <laughs> why? <laughs> well, you know, voice and piano is the easier one to answer the why, because um, more than any other, you know, if you grew up and your parent played violin, you heard violin from the womb, you know, you've heard it literally your entire life, you still will understand and hear the human voice more than any other source in your life. Yeah. Even if it's a different language or speaking words you don't understand, we have such a connection with that, that you can instinctively tell, even if it's a, a singer you've never heard, performing a piece you've never heard in a language you don't know, you can still say something's weird about that voice. Something doesn't right. quite, you know, it's, it's just so ingrained in us that when you do a voice piano thing, it's, there's not a lot to cover up anything that's going strangely with the voice. And so people just know right away, they go, something's weird. Something doesn't quite, quite sound right. And so it's just so, the expectation level. You've got to be so precise and perfect. Yeah. And then you couple that with the range of dynamic. I mean, I, I think about, I actually just earlier today was working on a piano and soprano album and 
going from just the quietest, softest, most intimate whisper to this kind of incredibly powerful, full voice, um, you know, high note in a couple of seconds through, you know, maybe one or two bars. It's uh, it's really incredible and and tough to capture keep that, that noise floor low. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you got to keep the noise low, and and oh, when you're man. mixing, you might have to help to make sure that you don't lose connection with the voice, but then back it off before it gets crazy bombastic. So yeah. uh, that's an interesting one. And piano, piano is. Uh, Man, it's it's like uh, you're lost in the woods and you just walk in circles, and every time you you walk in another circle, you learn something new. You know, I, I've recorded solo piano so many times, and every time I do, I get a little bit more nuance. I hear a little bit more, and um, you of all people know, you know, the the nuance and detail and subtlety in a piano. There's so much there. There's so much depth, and you might record it and you're like, oh, okay, that sounds like a piano, but does it capture that that artistry and the subtlety and the just detail that lies in every single, you know, finger movement? Um, that it's yeah, I I I've made some okay piano recordings and I think yours oh, yeah. turned out really well. But I'm like happy, I yeah. still like one day I'm going to make a piano recording and I'm just going to be like, that's it. You well, know, you, know, like, you might, it, that's okay. It's always searching for that is, is also fine. That's part right. of the artistic side of things. You never well, reach perfection really. And yeah. I think that's why, like, for example, um, you know, we talked earlier about samples and things like I, I own some piano sample libraries, some pretty expensive sample. Yeah. libraries, And I just, as, as much as I play them, I cannot get the same. It's impossible. You cannot get the same, um, feel the same touch, the same nuance that that you can from an actual real live wood, you know, and steel yeah. piano. <laughs> it just it doesn't happen. Um, it's, and it's and it's because they're just record as well recorded as they are. They're just recordings. Yeah, yeah, and and I think the the room matters so much too with the yes. piano. You know, I think about the length that you hold a note, the length that you hold a fermata, uh, the pause that you let happen. You know, there's a grand pause. How much time do I leave? That's going to change if you're in a small room or a big room or a medium room or a bright room or a dark room. And and I it's I can't imagine um, having only, you know, if you have a sample library and you're trying to perform in sort of a classical style, not having that information kind of right back at you has got to be very difficult. Yeah, that starts to affect interpretation too. Uh, yeah. You know, because the rhythm might be slightly, if you hold something longer than the relative lengths of notes, you, you start thinking in a slower, faster tempo. And yeah. A yeah. lot of things are affected and it's it's a snowball effect. Um, yeah, that's, that's fascinating to think about. I was, I was wondering too um, if you feel what well, we, it's nice to think that artistically, like we're always trying to perfect things. And uh, are there any pointers or certain things you've picked up from either recording piano or recording other instruments where it's like, oh, that that's a big aha moment, right? I just would have never thought of it that way. Um, I don't know. Some little yeah. gems. Oh, man. I mean, that's I'm a... sure there are hundreds. But... <laughs> that's a great question. Uh, yeah, you know, I think... I think, uh, and I was just kind of reminded of this again, you know, it's something that you just kind of have to keep keep on the, the top of your head, but sometimes uh, it becomes really easy to kind of put up a figurative wall where there's a literal wall between the musicians and the engineer, and you start to focus on only how things are through a microphone, um, and you know, one of the most important things you can do is listen to what you're actually recording with your actual ears in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes you you sort of, you put some microphones up, the person shows up, they start playing, you go, okay, it's fine. And then you walk out and you go, wait, that sounds totally different than what I thought it sounded like. And, you know, you really have to go back to the drawing board. Okay, how do I capture that sound? That right. player plays different than I was expecting and or that instrument speaks differently than I was expecting. So I think making sure that you really um, connect acoustically before you try to put a bunch of 
electronics between point A and point Z is is a good thing to remember. And I also think uh, for classical, uh, I think it's interesting. People, because classical music tends to be sort of typified by somebody on stage facing an audience and the audience is in front of them and that's how they hear that music or how they see that music, people get really stuck in this sort of concert mentality. But there's such cool things you can do um, when you're when you're not bound to that. If if you're just doing a recording, mm. you don't have to have everyone facing the same way. You don't have to have the violin player next to the keyboard or the piano. Maybe they could be in front of the piano or facing the piano, or you know, like there's these other options. And since yeah, we I think. I think we played around with that a little bit. Yeah. With, uh, hold on. We were kind of in a, in a situation where we probably wouldn't be like that in a concert hall, but just the balance and the sound and the connection seemed better. Exactly. Yeah. It's people are so used to seeing it one way because they're used to seeing it live that, that people sort of eliminate possibilities for no real reason. Just, just because that's sort of what they're accustomed to. Mm-hmm. Well, that's yeah. the artistic side that you bring to it too. So, you know, opening up all those those different options. It's funny, back in the, we were talking about the orchestra setups and thinking of the cellos on one side. And I've seen a lot of orchestras which try, even in live uh, performances, to change uh, the position of, of the instrument groups, mostly yeah. in the strings, maybe for a certain piece or to get a different balance because maybe they want cellos closer to the, the first violins. So I've seen them there. And then second violins or violas on the outside, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you if you can tell a difference when you record. Oh, or absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I, I love split violins, having firsts on one side and seconds on the other. Mm-hmm. There's so much music that was written either for a smaller environment where you could sort of hear that distinction more apparently mm-hmm. or that was written for being seated that way where you listen to it with first and seconds right next to each other and you hear kind of a smeared... Um, melodic line or smeared motifs. Um, but then when you spread them apart and now it's this kind of stereo effect, you hear a conversation and mm, the first say cool. something and the second say something back. And yeah, that's, that's so I'm like curious, my favorite in, thing in on piano earth. or at least in classical music, mm. there's this whole historical performance movement. I would say it's really gained momentum the last 20 or 30 years. Yeah. Uh, and even the whole field of ethnomusicology is fairly new. Musicology is a little older, but do you find that in the recording field, there's also this sense of, well, you know, how would a, how would a 19th or 18th century audience hear a Mozart symphony? And it's not just about putting the, the uh, orchestra members maybe carrying it down in size, moving them around. But what we what can we do from a recording audio standpoint to to make that experience more authentic? Kind, per se, kind of like colorizing the World War Two yeah, uh, videos, right. so we can like what do they actually look like, not what we imagine them as. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I feel like there's less of that. Well, you know, you think about recording as a medium, and it's just. It's brand new. I mean, it's the infant in the musical world by by leaps and bounds. Um, and so I feel like there's a little less of that, but there's definitely the movement, um, especially in like indie and lo-fi music, where people sure. are saying, you know, yeah, man, let's go back to using like five mics total and we're going to wow. do the whole thing. You know, we're going to keep it natural. We're going to keep it simple. And so I think there is some sort of retro um approach but i think it's maybe less less widespread than in certain disciplines because you're (laughs) right there's definitely that question of how was this intended to be i feel like is very prevalent in a lot of classical music today even if it's not a period ensemble or an ensemble with that intention um but in recording it yeah i think it's still the, the big question is how will people hear this I think that's the, you know, well, and, that, and, and that's such a, like a big topic in a way. Cause it, it's funny. Cause like, how do people hear this? Well, how do people hear like from one side of the concert hall versus the other? How do you like, it's almost like we are, we're, we're giving people 
more of the feeling of what they think they should hear as opposed to what they would actually hear. <laughs> if yeah. that makes any sense at all. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's, it's sort of funny when you think about, you know, my, my starting setup for a large ensemble on a stage recording session, live concert, kind of either, or is, you know, two or three microphones sort of up and above and back a little from like the conductor or that center stage point. And you're like, Oh yeah, that's cool. That sounds really natural, whatever. And then you look down at the concert hall and you go, well, no one's sitting there. So clearly that's yeah. not- <laughs> no one's floating in the air. <laughs> exactly. No one has ever heard a concert from there. You yeah. know? So it is this kind of like, well, I, I guess, but, but not really. You know? yeah. we're, we're kind of making it up well, a but little. That, but that's the whole thing. It, 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 it's just like any other art. It's almost more about the the intention the feeling the yeah it's like it's like when we go to go see a world war ii movie like those things didn't actually happen but it gives us the impression of it you know it's like okay i can understand better what it might be like or have those same feelings maybe yeah and i think that's one of the big changes between live and recorded audio and now again recorded audio to recorded audio in service of video or partnered with video yes is i think about when it's just an audio presentation you have to accentuate certain things that your eyes would fill in for you you know if you mm. tell you're in a concert hall mm-hmm. you don't need to hear any more concert hall to know that you can look around and say i'm in a big concert hall right but when it's just um audio when that's all you have to go on you almost have to um accentuate that to fill Put a in. microphone fa- facing the audience and- yeah yeah you know whatever it might be to sort of fill in that little bit of extra information that clears that's up the missing senses and and, I, and let's talk about this for a second because i think it's such a fascinating we're in such an interesting time with the pandemic that's happened um, and, and I mean, we could probably talk for another two hours about, about <laughs> the changes and, and oh, how, yeah. what people's perceptions are and, and how to, how to deal with non-concert concerts and all sorts of things like that. Right. But, but video has become, you know, obviously YouTube, I think has, has changed the world. Yes. Uh, um, you know, and as, as much as MTV changed a little bit, like that was Compared to that, this is this is like a, a atomic bomb in yeah. the world of sound, um, yeah. Because the visuals are so present and so there. Talk to me a little bit about video. You, you mentioned a little bit, but but video and specifically the pandemic and and as people have moved into a more video setting, either for podcasts, either for for music concerts. I mean, there's a tons of recitals. There's there's um, you know, I teach, and so you know, I may be doing a, a recital online. <laughs> you know, all yeah, these things yeah. have changed. Um, it, talk about yeah, that. It's it's crazy. I it. I think we were moving there in a lot of ways, like you said. You know, MTV was MTV was, you know, the first atomic bomb, and YouTube is is the hydrogen bomb, you know, it's 20 times bigger. It's kind of like this, this Goliath that has really sculpted the world. But, um, I think what's interesting is in both of those cases, you see it was popular music. It was rock music. It was pop. It was hip hop. It was, um, rap that drove a lot of that change. Um, and so what's been entertaining to me is to kind of watch classical music that was in a lot of ways resistant to some of these changes and, and consistently resistant, you know, it's sort of a very um, established uh, trying to think what the word is in technology. We'd call it a slow technology, meaning it's sort of, it's gone through a lot of evolution and it's kind of reached its it's pinnacle stage, you know? Okay. Um, so, so there's not as much av- evolution happening and that's what was happening with video. Um, I, I went to the concert hall of a nameless orchestra in the United States. They had installed 12 brand new, beautiful pan tilt zoom 4k cameras, which at the time they installed them probably were between 15 and 20 grand each. They'd built an entire control room. They'd done all this stuff. 
So they probably put a million plus just into equipment and then they yeah. found personnel and everything. And they were like, eh, we don't really like it. And they did three shows and they just, they haven't turned it on since. Wow. And that was before the <laughs> pandemic. And then you get some other orchestras who had done the same thing, but we're keeping up with it and we're generating content. And you look at the, who, who has sort of come out okay from all of this and who has yeah. really suffered. And it was those orchestras, those entities that were more willing to evolve that have kind of weathered the storm a bit better than, than the ones that were resistant to the media approach. Um, I know that's sort of point. off from what, what you originally said. No, but. no, but that is such an important point. Cause it's what, 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 what are you willing to do to stay relevant yeah. in a changing world? And, and I think, you know, even, you know, and this is a totally off the subject thing, but I think about that in terms of like copyright infringement yeah. things with, with YouTube and, you know, and, and, and here, here are guys, I think guys like Rick Beata who, who puts out these amazing video uh, teaching courses basically for yep. free, you know, and then, and then some, some artist is going to say, no, cause you use my music to, to teach somebody something. I'm going to not let you do that. And it's, and the problem isn't, it's so short-sighted. It's so yes. like, wait a sec, you're not going to be relevant in 50 years if you do that. You realize yeah. that. Yeah. Well, mostly I would yeah, say it's I the think companies there's, that there's are There's a doing lot it. of that like immediate protection of monetary whatever. And like, right. man, you've just got to stop for a, just a second and think about like the long-term ramifications of some of these things. You know, it's uh, the copyright thing it's has so, blown my mind of late. I really... I still hope that if there's a silver lining to the pandemic, that maybe the way music is treated online will will sort of change um, so. because it's real hard to put together a program of 50 or 60 minutes of music, put it on YouTube and not have a problem with copyright. It's You're incredibly difficult. To. Yeah. yeah, guaranteed to. Even, even I, if it's I, stuff in the public domain, I get well. I get copyrighted on my own stuff. Yeah, <laughs> you know. It's a, yeah. Wait a second. I wrote that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's it's and, it, it's. and if you're not a big record label who has a department that deals with it, getting through that process of just getting your own money back is difficult. I mean, right. it's it's yeah. it's but, but a world that's. To, uh, sorry, I just want—I I did want to—I wanted to go back to the the yeah. sound and the video stuff because I think that is so. What your point is so important is 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 um you know as human beings, like how do we experience stuff? Well, yes, we experience through through the through our ears, but man, if you can couple that with sight, and if you yeah. can do something powerful, that that's a big deal. It's a yeah, it's it's a much more engaging engaging uh media form it's you know our in our everyday lives our sight is kind of king of all of our senses if we have a question where two things don't make sense or are in conflict we pretty much default as humans perceptually to rely on our sight and um being able to engage that you know i feel like if i hand somebody a cd of music that's wonderful that's going to get you know, 10% traction. But if I can show them the music, all of a sudden mm -hmm. we're 50 or 60%. Like I just, that engagement and engaging more than one sense is massive, but it, it's well, challenging from an audio perspective because now, yeah. you know, you, you've got, let's, I keep going back to orchestra cause it's an easy example, but um, the bassoon is playing the melody. And so there's a close up of the bassoon. If you, act the same way as you would on a record where the bassoon still sounds kind of far away or something like that. Um, now so you have a mismatch between video and audio yes. in the contrived world of video, you know? So it's, it's interesting. Uh, people have oh, to adapt. That's so, that is so important. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a little it's, nuance. Yeah. No, it's huge. It's, it's like, it's like turning up, you know, turning up the, the, uh, um, the synth track, you know, yeah, <laughs> all yeah. the way to all the way to ten, you know, and it's and and because that's what you're looking at. That's what you, you're going to hear. What you're looking at, yeah. That is and and the 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 best example is to me is non musical. Still, if you watch a, a film that has bad ADR, 
And so you mm-hmm. see the actor's mouth moving and the words don't quite match up. Yeah. Everyone just loses their mind and yeah, totally right. understandably. But like, I feel like music never had to deal with that as much. And now we have a similar situation where it's like, well, the violin is, is you know, a full screenshot of this one violin player, but we hear mostly bass. Yeah. yeah. You know, my brain doesn't get what's happening, you know? And so we've had to like adjust that it's not just about the music. It's about the music plus the other sense. I so. did a, I did a, a vi- I did a video shoot a few months ago and it was, and I saw it and I'm looking at it and, and I just know, I mean, I know what happened. You know, the, the video guy doesn't play the piano, doesn't play the <laughs> keyboard. And so he's taking the best shots that he can take and it ain't matching what's I'm hearing. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Wow. That's, yeah, that's it, And anyone who knows will just be pulling their hair out. You know, <laughs> right. that's not what that key does. That's not what's happening. Yeah. Well, that's my favorite because I, I music... you know I was a drummer, so is when you see a music video and somebody's playing the hi hat and you're hearing the ride cymbal. I'm like, right. this is killing me. I have to turn it off. I need to leave. Like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, cognitive dissonance at its finest through music, uh, through music and video. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know what? Let, let's do this. I want to ask. Just we're kind of coming short on time anyway. Let yeah. me ask you this: because of the pandemic and. We talked about expectations. We talked about audience expectations. We talked about, um, and and I loved your what you talked about doing the the uh, piano trio in the um, in a home. Um, yeah. What talk to me about like what have you seen from a recording aspect? Um, I don't know, maybe a tip to help us get better recordings at home. Um, <laughs> what is <laughs> what 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 can um, um, what have you seen or, or, or where, where do you see things going or how maybe a better question is this, how has the pandemic changed the venue of concerts and recitals and, and that sort of thing? I, I think, I, I think there's going to be some real upsides as, as horrendous as it has been. I I'm hopeful. I feel like first and foremost, I feel like a live music is about to experience an incredible renaissance because I think everyone is excited to hear live music again. But um, I think maybe out of all of this, people have realized that there's a whole world out there that they can make music in. It doesn't have to just be the club you're playing at or the concert hall you're performing in, that there's there's more to the world than just these places that we sort of confined music because there've been some amazing things that have happened in people's living rooms and, um, you know, people's, uh, backyards. There, there have just really been some amazing mu- moments in music. And I think that maybe people will think less in the box, um, yeah. going forward. They'll, they'll be willing to explore these things because we've been forced to now. So well put. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I want, I feel like I, there's, there's so much we could discuss here. I know, I've, right? This is too much I've, fun. I know, <laughs> it's been a blast. Let, let, let's do a part two sometime. Let's get together. Let's have another I'm conversation if you don't mind. All right. Yeah. Let's, let's put that together. Dr. Brett Leonard, thank you so much for being on. And if love remains. Oh, um, what's, if somebody wants to get in touch with you, or is there anything that you're doing that, that people, you know, want to support you? How, is there anything like that, um, that, that if, you want to throw out there? If, if you want to get in touch, if you want to, to, you know, bounce questions off me, whatever, I'm, I'm always happy to chat. Um, my company's website is blpaudio.com. Um, so you can, there's got my email on there, phone number, all that good stuff. So you can, you can give me a shout there. I'm always happy to, uh, touch base. And then, yeah, I, I'm just excited. There are so many cool artists that I'm working with right now that are finally getting back to making music. So hopefully uh-huh. people will see some of this stuff getting out to the world soon. Fantastic. We'll definitely do that. And and uh, um, we'll, we'll put that information also in, in the show notes. Um, awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Leonard. I really appreciate your time. Um, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> Great. It's I'll, I'll try fun. to set up a part two is, uh, you know, when we get around to it, this would be a lot of fun. There's so many topics. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. And thank you, Elias, for, for putting this together. Um, again, this is, and if, you've been listening to Mike Levitt, and this is And If Love Remains. Mm-hmm.